You're listening to an episode of the C19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and the future through the United States and the long 19th century. We are an official production of C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Disclaimer. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the opinions of the respective individual's employers, nor the official opinions of C-19. Hello, C-19 podcast listeners. We are bringing you the second episode in our best of the C-19 podcast series as we prepare for the launch of season six. In this favor from the archive, you will hear Ivy Schweitzer and her team at Dartmouth College discuss White Heat. Emily Dickinson in 1862. The weekly blog, which created original and immersive contexts in which to read Dickinson, remains an exemplar of public humanities work and of digital pedagogy. This episode originally aired on September 28, 2018. Are you too deeply occupied to say if my verse is alive? The mind is so near itself it cannot see distinctly and I have none to ask. Should you think it breathed, and had you the leisure to tell me, I should feel quick gratitude. Emily Dickinson wrote that on April 15, 1862, in a letter to Thomas Wentworth Higginson, in response to his essay, Letter to a Young Contributor, in the April issue of Atlantic Monthly. There, he lists his rules for style, which include this one. Quote, there may be phrases which shall be palaces to dwell in, treasure houses to explore. A single word may be a window from which one may perceive all the kingdoms of the earth and the glory of them. Oftentimes, a word shall speak what accumulated volumes have labored in vain to utter. There may be years of crowded passion in a word and half a life in a sentence, end quote. Dickinson didn't really take much of... Higginson's recommendations, but this one really, really spoke to her because, in fact, she was the queen of compression. We feel and hear that compression in the pressure Dickinson puts on words, the pressure words put on us. It produces a kind of reverberation of meanings, a sequence of sounds, like networks that we both hear and comprehend or not. In the case of Emily Dickinson, some are lost to time. I'm Ivy Schweitzer, a professor at Dartmouth College and the director of White Heat, Emily Dickinson in 1862, a weekly blog. I'm Michael Amico, speaking from Brooklyn, New York. And as a former student of yours, Ivy, you invited me to write one of the week's personal reflections. And the topic of that week was whiteness. So every week in 2018, Ivy, you and a team of students choose a theme and select six or so poems that Emily Dickinson wrote in the year 1862. And then you provide a summary of recent critical responses to them and frame them with a summary of the literary culture at the time of their writing. You frame them with news clippings from the Springfield Republican and other sources. And then you also include a kind of weekly review of the biographical goings on of the Dickinson family and their friends. And then every week you end with a personal reflection like the one I wrote. I wanted a kind of kaleidoscopic approach to Dickinson. I wanted us to really put her into many contexts. She came from a upper class family in the village of Amherst uh, in Western Massachusetts. She was born in 1830, never really left her father's house for any long period of time and died there in 
1886. After she died, her sister Lavinia found 40 hand-sewn booklets of poems and other loose papers in a dresser drawer. They knew she was writing poetry, but they, they didn't know there was that much poetry. She also wrote letters to her sister-in-law, Sue, who lived next door, who had over 400 pieces of her writing as well. But because of the, the bitterness and antagonism between these two houses, who for decades after Dickinson's death published competing collections of poems and letters, we did not really have a true sense of the scope of Dickinson's poetry, which amounts to almost 1,800 poems until Thomas Johnson's edition of 1955, and then R.W. Franklin published his Variorum edition in 1998. So in some sense, we're still trying to come to terms with the extraordinary canon of Emily Dickinson. Why a blog? Why does this exploration take this form? Well, in some sense, I wanted to get into Dickinson's world, into her creative process, in a way that wasn't the usual, let's write an academic monograph. I was partly inspired by the idea of the networked recluse, which was the title of the 2017 catalog of the Dickinson exhibit at the Morgan Library in New York City. One of the goals of that exhibit was to illustrate Dickinson's extensive social and cultural connections because they felt it was really important to counter the myth that she was isolated and that she was she was a recluse, but on the other hand, she was networked, very, very networked. networked. It also refers to the digitization of Dickinson's manuscripts. And this is important because it absolutely revolutionized Dickinson's studies. Readers could finally read Dickinson's poems as she wrote them without the distorting intervention of editors, who in fact are mostly male. So these digital manuscripts served to liberate Dickinson from a publishing culture that in her own life she repudiated and she refused to publish in print publication. She actually sent her poems out to friends in letters. It's important to us to include links to the images of the manuscripts for every poem we discuss so that people can actually look at the development of her handwriting and, and how she actually created these visual images of her language and her poetry. It's pretty eye-opening to see her own writing on the page. And who are you? Uh, I'm Victoria Corwin. I'm a current student of Ivy's at Dartmouth College. But right now, I'm in Athens, Greece. I'm super interested in Dickinson and manuscript studies, specifically because of this project and my participation in it. One of my favorite manuscripts is One Sister Have I in the House, the copy that was sent to Sue for her birthday. But Dickinson wrote lots of poems to and for and about Sue. And this one is one of the most loving. It reads really cutesy and innocent until you look at the manuscript, which is just destroyed. It's absolutely mangled. It's torn to pieces. It's inked over. Someone really went to work on like completely erasing this poem. And Dickinson herself actually reworks the stanzas quite a bit. And to see that, to see the actual state of the manuscript. It just changes the readings of the poems so much. One Sister, I think, is definitely like this passionate love letter that was just torn to pieces because someone hated it, although we don't know who. I, on the other hand, came by Dickinson like most students growing up in New England. I also read and recited a handful of Dickinson poems back in high school and was confronted by these ideas of isolation or that Dickinson was a recluse. I'm Joe, by the way, I'm connecting with you all from Brunswick, Maine. And 
it wasn't really until my second encounter with Dickinson taking Ivy's class and then also working with her on these blogs that I sort of had to come to terms with this idea of networking. And at first, I think I found it pretty frustrating to try to pull in all of these aspects of history, literary culture, biography, um, and really dig into archives and letters and things that were being published at the time. But after a couple of weeks of doing it, I started to feel like I was really getting into Dickinson's head and every word she said, I was trying to figure out where that came from or what she might've been reading at the time. And I actually felt like this experience really changed my conception of Dickinson's writing and also sort of undid some of the stereotypes I had learned about Dickinson being reclusive and really started to understand this idea of networking. So now I'm wondering how moving online, you know, into a like digitally connected space, the internet, how does that fuel this exploration demonstrating even these connections of thoughts of, of spaces themselves? I wanted to experiment with doing scholarship differently. I really wanted to challenge myself to use the resources that my students go to all the time to create what might be an enduring pedagogical resource for this notoriously difficult poet. I, of course, I want to bring more people to a a reading and appreciation of Dickinson. But I also went to a digital project because they're always collaborative. That is, I, I, you can't do them by yourself. It really requires a community of people. And this works well with my feminist background where collaboration across differences and building community are central focus. This is actually my second digital humanities project, and I always involve students. We have tech wizards. We have librarians who are kind of the foundations of the kind of work we do. And so at the same time as we're creating a project, what I try to do is create an intellectual community of inquiry around a kind of subject matter. I also find the multimedia aspects of a website liberating so we can include audio tapes and music. Dickinson, in fact, was a, an amazing Im improviser on the piano. And you link to your daughter Becca's performance of Aaron Copeland's Dickinson settings on YouTube. Did I That's right. And I wanted to really kind of harness all that energy that makes the web so attractive to students, not just for their academic resources, but also in terms of social media. I wanted to harness that energy and turn it towards the revitalization of the humanities in terms of how we communicate today. So we have different content laid next to each other. Then we have connections that are more multimedia. So images of the manuscript pages, audio files, even. Now there's a year attached to this project, 1862. So why choose the year 1862 to explore Dickinson in this way? On April 25th, 1862, Emily wrote her second letter to Hickinson. Thank you for the surgery. It was not so painful as I supposed. I bring you others as you ask, though they might not differ. While my thought is undressed, I can make the distinction. But when I put them in the gown, they look alike and numb. You asked how old I was. I made no verse but one or two until this winter, sir. I had a terror since September. I could tell to none. And so I sing, as the boy does by the burying ground, because I am afraid. No one's really sure what exactly she means by this terror. It's sort of this ambiguous term. It could be very personal. And it leads us to ask questions like, why this moment? Why 1862? Did this 
terror influence her in some way? Did it cause her to contact Higginson? But 1862 was actually one of her most productive years. She says in one of her poems that it's the year at the white heat. 1862 really allows us to take a look at how a sensitive, brilliant mind can deal with death and crisis, especially during wartime. More importantly, and perhaps relatedly, it's also the year that she came out as a poet to a public figure like Higginson, who might recognize her as a poet or might not. It was definitely a risk that she was taking, but it seemed like a time when she was looking for sort of a literary equal in a way, someone who she could reach out to and discuss these ideas and discuss writing, and she ultimately did. She contacts Higginson because he wrote this letter in April in the Atlantic Monthly. Did she know him in other ways? And did she imagine connecting with him in ways beyond simply that person who offered advice to young writers? She and her family read Atlantic Monthly, for which he wrote the Springfield Republican that published him and mentioned him as a writer. But also he was a social reformer. He was a radical abolitionist and he was a noted public figure. Brenda Wineapple wrote a fantastic biography of their friendship, which also happens to be called White Heat, because this year of 1862 is the year of this kind of incredible creative heat and fervor. And she notes that by 1862, Dickinson would have known Higginson by reputation. His activities and opinions and what Wineapple called his sheer moxie were in the headline for years. And in fact, later in 1862, he becomes a colonel in the 1st Regiment of South Carolina Volunteers, which was the first regiment comprised of freed slaves. So he was very much in the news and a kind of a magnet, but he also had a literary side to him. And she would have been attracted, I think, to that as well. He was creative. He was connected. He was male, which was important because he could do anything and be anything. And he was doing anything and being anything that he wanted. But most importantly, he was a complete stranger to Dickinson. He was outside of her family circle. The family didn't know him personally, so she could completely invent herself to him or reinvent herself. She could become anyone who she wanted to be. At the same time where the question for the country itself is one of reinvention, and 1862 being towards the beginning of the war, wherein the country itself is in suspension. The Springfield Republican, February 8th, Review of the Week. Quote, the status quo continues. The story of the week is soon told. Inaction and suspense everywhere. An embargo of mud and water all along the line, which only days, it may be weeks, of sunshine and wind can raise. have been in circulation in respect to an armistice and compromise, but they were doubtless weak inventions of the northern allies of treason, who see the fate impending over the heads of their friends and would gladly avert it. But neither the government nor the people will listen to any propositions until the rebels lay down their arms and make an unconditional submission, 
and that they are unlikely to do so till their armies in Virginia and the Southwest are defeated and destroyed. incredibly close to home for Dickinson and her family. Many young men enlisted from Amherst, uh, including professors and students at Amherst College. And then in 1862, in March, they experienced the death of Fraser Stearns, who was the son of the president of Amherst College and a friend of the Dickinson family, especially close to Dickinson's brother, Austin. In fact, the week that Dickinson reached out to Higginson, the Springfield Republican reported an event memorializing Stearns. The Springfield Republican, April 19th, presentation of rebel cannon to Amherst College. Inscribed at Chicopee, formally presented to Amherst College Monday afternoon, taken by the 21st Massachusetts Regiment near the spot where Adjutant Fraser Stearns fell. He was a model soldier, faithful, active, intelligent, and brave, among the bravest. Dickinson, chairman of the occasion, made known the object of the gathering and a few appropriate remarks. He referred to the sacred associations of the day, it being the anniversary of the time when the great uprising of the people began. the death of Frazier Stearns, this young man so close to home that spurred Dickinson to come out as a poet. I think that did incite in her a need to scream out into the world and to express herself outside of her correspondences and her self-publishing that in ways that she hasn't before. Piety, purity, domesticity, and submissiveness. These were the four cardinal virtues of what we now call the cult of true womanhood, which is the way we describe how the 19th century imagined the role of women. Dickinson's mother, Emily Norcross, epitomized this ideal. And in fact, Dickinson was not very close to her until later on in their lives when her mother, Emily, became ill. And her father, Dickinson told Higginson in her second letter, quote, buys me many books, but begs me not to read them because he fears they joggle the mind. 
So this is a kind of amazing double message he's sending to her. In fact, he built her a greenhouse on the side of the homestead where Dickinson could grow exotic plants because he thought gardening was a much more appropriate pastime for women than writing. Dickinson had three portraits hanging in the southwest corner of her bedroom at the homestead. One was Carlyle, one was George Eliot, who went so far as to take a male pseudonym, and then Elizabeth Barrett Browning, a very successful poet who eschewed publishing commercial and very sentimental poetry and wanted to be considered a serious intellectual. So Barrett Browning died in 1861, and Emily Dickinson wrote several poems and elegies during that period about her. I was reading that the first elegy written about Dickinson herself was actually by her sister-in-law, Susan Dickinson, whom scholars have also shown was actually Dickinson's closest correspondent. And as they also say, not merely because she lived next door. Yeah, Sue and Emily were incredibly close for over 40 years. Sue married Austin in 1856, which caused her to move into the building next door, the Evergreens. And then in 1861, she had her first child, Edward, nicknamed Ned. Uh, so he, she was very busy in 1862 with this one-year-old and also with building up her social profile in Amherst, which consisted of hosting really fabulous parties and dinners for some incredibly distinguished guests. She hosted Ralph Waller Emerson once, but Emily did not come. <laughs> Yet... Sue always found time to act as Emily's editor and to comment on her poems, including the one that she published in the Springfield Republican in March. Under the title, The Sleeping. Safe in their alabaster chambers, untouched by morning and untouched by noon, sleep the meek members of the resurrection rafter of satin and roof of stone. Light laughs the breeze in her castle above them, babbles the bee in a stolid ear. Pipe the sweet birds in ignorant cadences. Ah, what sagacity perished here. A month later, Dickinson included that poem in her first letter to Higginson, but with a different second stanza. Grand go the years in the crescent above them. Worlds scoop their arcs and firmaments row. Diadems drop and doges surrender, soundless as dots on a disk of snow. Much frostier, uh, as Dickinson said, this version is, and also much grander. It has a wonderful cosmic sweep and it has a sense of royalty frequent in Dickinson's other poems of this period in which she is trying to kind of entitle herself as a woman and as a writer. And what's interesting is that Sue did not like this second stanza. She preferred the first one. Dickinson set herself up in these letters to Higginson as a sort of novice writer. I think you remember she said she'd only written one or two poems by Winter, but she was already a poet at this time. In fact, she had started writing seriously in 1858 and had accumulated so many poems that she would write them in fair copies in little booklets. And scholars end up calling these fascicles. And she had sewn them together herself. So in a way, it's a form of personal or self-publication. But she needed at this time a sounding board, even if that were someone who couldn't quite understand her innovations and experimentations. In the post for April 15th on the first letter to Higginson, I list 17 rules that Higginson offered in his letter to a young contributor. 
Rule number 16. Reduce yourself to short allowance of parentheses and dashes. Well, that's certainly one she didn't <laughs> she didn't take heed of because in fact she is the queen of the dash and she raises the dash up to a level of existential importance. Rule number 17. Literature is attar of roses, one distilled drop from a million blossoms. The attar of the rose is not expressed by sons alone. It is the gift of screws. This is Dickinson's version of that lovely sentiment by Higginson. So you can see she takes almost his exact words. And a year later in a poem, the first line of which is essential oils are wrung. She gives it this incomparable Dickinson twist by really getting into the physicality of what it means to distill meaning, of what it means for the poet to actually compress her thoughts into these incredibly powerful, resonant words. But she also expresses the suffering here because you, you, you feel the screws kind of tightening up as if somehow they're thumb screws. So it has a sense of kind of torture in it. But this poem is important because it suggests that even in 1863, a year later, she's still thinking about and writing back to Higginson and his recommendations. And when we're reading these poems, we have to constantly attend to the fact that the words and phrases that she chooses have many alternative forms. And one of the interesting things is that when you look at these fair copies in the manuscripts, you'll see alternative forms or words written into the margins and above or below a line. And you have to consider them all at once, which is very difficult to do on the page. It makes it difficult if you want to type out a poem, for example. We can conceptualize this as trying to deal with a nonlinear presentation, which would end up being so important on the web. Hyperlinks are actually the perfect example of a space struggling with its limitations. It forces websites into these linear pages that force the reader to click away for more information about one thing for the page that you're already on, or click away to another tab for doing something completely different. But hyperlinks assist in giving you more context and info about what you're reading. And they're just like Dickinson's little crosses and X's with words attached. I really wanted the digital format of the blog to highlight Dickinson's deliberate resistance of closure, what Sharon Cameron so rightly calls her choosing, not choosing. So that what we have to understand is that her poems are not fixed and do not deliver nuggets of meaning, but in fact are alive, are in process, are dynamic, they're always evolving. They're what Marta Werner calls events of freedom. There came a day at summer's full entirely for me. I thought that such were for the saints where resurrections be. The sun, as common, went abroad, 
the flowers accustomed blue, as if no soul that solstice passed, which maketh all things new. The time was scarce profaned by speech. The falling of a word was needless, as at sacrament, the wardrobe of our Lord. Each was to each the sealed church, permitted to commune this time, lest we too awkward show at supper of the Lamb. The hours slip fast as ours will, clutched tight by greedy hands, so faces on two decks look back, bound to opposing lands. And so when all the time had leaked without external sound, each bound the other's crucifix, we gave no other bond. Sufficient troth that we shall rise, deposed at length the grave, to that new marriage justified through Calvaries of love. This is one of the poems that Emily included in her second letter to Higginson. And it lays out the bride slash marriage slash renunciation paradigm that she uses so often in her poetry. It draws this sweeping parallel between saints of the resurrection and a bride on her wedding day, uh, making them both powerful and holy and divine, like equals. And also there's this phrase that she uses, Calvaries of love. And it tripped us up in class a lot because it sounds like cavalries of love, which is incredibly militaristic and kind of scary and spooky. But Calvary is the site of the crucifixion. So this is not an accident, right? She's referring to the crucifixion, but also to military power. She makes marriage sound like a crucifixion, like a sacrifice. Also, this poem seems to come to terms with the terror that she suffered, um, especially the first two stanzas and the last stanza for me. The first two talking about the new days and the changing of the seasons as if nothing had been out of the ordinary for the longest time. And then the last one describing this newly minted marriage, which allows its newlyweds to rise, depose at length the grave. So transcend death, right? Forcefully through this act of really militaristic love and to effectively become immortal. So the poem asks and acts like it answers the question of the terror, but we don't quite know what the terror was or what kind of object of communication that was, even when it was mentioned in one of her letters to Higginson. Was this poem referring to her love for Sue? Was it for her, even though it was included in the letter for Higginson? It could refer to her love for Sue. You know, the faces on the two docks that look back bounds to opposing lands, her and Sue sounds like the evergreen and the homesteads where they both lived side by side, but still so far apart from each other. Who is the receiver of any one of these lines, these poems? Uh, who's listening? 
And what do different people hear? I think we may have lost Victoria. Joe, do you want to respond? Huh? Oh, no. What's happening? Mike, I can hear Victoria. I can hear Victoria. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was wondering. There was a, a pause when I thought she was speaking and I didn't hear anyone. I don't know why I would have blurred out on my end. Can you all still hear Victoria? I can't hear her now. I heard her before, though. Well, can no one hear me? I can't hear I, Mike. <laughs> I can hear you, Victoria. I cannot anymore. Oh, huh. Communication, miscommunication, connection through miscommunication. Actually, that's the beauty of Dickinson's poetry. You can't really know who she's referring to. It, it could be poetry that she's referring to, the muse. Do we know what Higginson himself wrote back to Dickinson in response to any of her letters to him? No, actually, Dickinson directed her sister to burn all the letters after her death. And Lavinia started to do that, but at some point kind of stopped. So we do have some letters, but we don't have the Higginson letters. A final important point about their relationship is that Dickinson wanted to ensure the posthumous publication of her poetry. And she, I think, felt that Higginson would be somebody who could do that for her. And in fact, Higginson and a young woman named Mabel Loomis Todd become the co-editors of Dickinson's posthumous poetry. Mabel, who was actually Austin's mistress, but that's a whole other story. Mabel goes on to publish many volumes of her poetry and, and also her letters. The connections that we make possible in a digitized website can, I think, capture some of the connections that Dickinson sought and created in her life in ways that scholarship has not been able to grasp before. And that's what I'm really trying to get at with this whole project. With these connections, I think the blog can be a model for doing scholarship in the digital age and in an age of also national crisis. There's so much in the poems that we don't know and is really not meant to be known. So instead of modeling a kind of traditional reading of a poem of what something might mean and scholars proffering their different meanings, uh, what the blog does is retain these private unknown meanings, yet put them next to other information, be it news sources, a letter, another poem, something that happened in the Dickinson family. And that's obviously where the idea of an intimately networked privacy comes from. So that all of the writing and the blog itself and our conversation here and now is posing the very question of connection and how we connect. I'm in Brooklyn. Ivy, you're in Norwich, Vermont. Joe, you're in Maine. Victoria, you're in Greece. It's the technology that makes it feel like we're in the same room. And it sounds to me like that technology of simultaneous distance and presence is the technology of writing. And that Dickinson is modeling that in her poetry. That is almost her subject, that her poetry blasts open this small room in which she wrote. It blasts open the room, yet it never leaves it. The songs you've heard throughout this episode are Emily Dickinson poems set to music by Aaron Copeland. The vocalist is Becca Schweitzer. Piano accompaniment is by Vicki Noe and Anamika McLean. The students who were part of the conversation were Victoria Corwin, a Dartmouth senior, and Joe Waring, 
a recent graduate. Harriet Yar, class of 87, is the White Heat website designer and tech troubleshooter. This episode was co-produced by me, Michael Amico, and Conrad Winslow. The White Heat blog is available at journeys.dartmouth.edu slash whiteheat. Please subscribe on the website to receive the weekly blog directly in your mailbox. And we would also love to get your comments and feedback for the next iteration of the project, probably turning the blog posts into an ebook. Thank you for listening to the C19 podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag C19podcast or get in touch with us at C19podcast at gmail.com. Have an idea for an episode? Check out our CFP on the C19 website for more details on submitting a proposal.